you can go ahead and bring up my slide stuff. I want to talk a minute about gratitude and some things that I'm grateful for. There it is. I am grateful for this. This is a lid for communion cups. And I'm so grateful for it because if it were left up to me to figure out how to craft a contraption and a lid to hold communion cups and to cover them so flies don't land in the communion cup juice, which is grape cranberry juice today for those of you who are thinking about that, it would look nothing like this. It would look terrible. It'd probably be paper towels. I mean, <laughs> I do not have that artisanal skill or the patience that a Lauren Haas does, uh, that my brother does, that can make fine things, that Ed Edwards can with his glass and other things. I don't have it. And so I'm just deeply appreciative today <laughs> that somebody knew how to make this stuff eons ago and that somebody figured out how to manufacture it so churches could buy this affordably. And this has been around this church Good grief. I bet some of you were children here and this was being used, right, Sharon Rogers and Ted Valencia? Yep, uh, back in the day. So I am grateful that there are people who can figure out how to do that. And even these beautiful matching bread plates things that are made for communion, they're, they're beautiful and they last. And I'm grateful for the craftsmanship. And I'm grateful that we live in a, in a world where you can dig up the ore and refine it to the point where it looks like this and can be shaped and I'm grateful for the people who know how to do that and bring it about and make it possible for us to have that. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for this thing. Somebody along the way, Lauren has used this tool before, somewhere along the way people figured out that guys like me are going to make a complete mess of communion trying to pour into every little teeny shot glass you know, for, for all of you. And so somebody made this cool little... Whoop, made this little plungery thing so I can fill this with the juice and just doop, 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 doop like an assembly line and not make a big fat mess. I'm so grateful for that person who figured out that that's even possible and then made it affordable for all of us churches everywhere and pastors and teams that prepare communion to do that. So I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for this, almond flour crackers. Gluten-free, Sharon Rogers, and those of you who are trying to get away from gluten. Uh, and they actually taste pretty good. Uh, so I'm grateful for that so we can have communion without causing excess inflammation <laughs> in the name of Jesus <laughs> here today. I'm grateful for these plastic cups, even though I'm not real happy with uh, how little plastic we figured out how to recycle. I read an article this week that says we're only really, truly recycling about 1% of plastic with all of our recycling efforts, they just don't have the technology to make it affordable yet. That's deeply disturbing and we need to think about that. But I'm deeply grateful that we have these because that means we can very cleanly and very easily and cheaply provide communion for you. Communion is one of those things that I'm also grateful for. I'm grateful for what the bread represents, which I'll get to, and I'm grateful for what the cup represents, which we'll get to. And I want to tell you that this is a multifaceted metaphorical experience that we're going to do together at the end of my teaching that is open to all of you. 
I am very aware that there are still church traditions today that do not welcome you to this table unless you've ticked several boxes. That is not the case here in our tradition. You may be entering this for the first time and you've never ever done this and you are welcome to and you're not sure about what creed you have to sign off on and I'm telling you you don't have to do that. Because depending how we enter into this experience together, God is able to meet us there. And this can be a powerful experience for everybody, from those who are just tasting and seeing that God might be, might be <laughs> and might be good, for all of you who might take this to the greatest depths of theological meaning. Uh, it's open for everybody. At the end of my teaching, I'm going to invite all of you to come grab a, a cracker and grab a cup, and it's going to be messy and chaotic. At the end of my teaching, I'm going to invite you forward to grab that and then to make a circle on the outside of this whole area. So we're going to be looking at each other, and then we'll take communion together. That's where we're headed. Does that make sense? I'm grateful for that. And after I've said all this gratitude about all of these elements and the fact that we live in a world that produces juice from plants, how cool is that? How cool is that? And how we can produce grains that produce food to eat. How cool is that? And people who know how to put that together. I'm grateful for this building that's made out of materials that were generated from the earth. The cement that has been here for 70 years almost. For these incredible beams that grew from trees that were here before the, before the cement was poured. Those bricks that were laid uh, and bought by crosswalkers. First Baptist members many years ago with a campaign to say, we need you to be generous so we can create a house of worship for people to come for a very long time. We, are, we have so much to be grateful for, and we are standing in the presence of those who've gone before us, who've been generous, who've got it, who understood what we have and what we're working with. So I'm grateful, and I hope you'll be grateful with me too. So on the next slide, uh, you can bring that up. This is a picture of me and my kids. Uh, just a few years ago, my kids are now... Uh, 23 and 25 years old, and they're flown the coop and both doing well. My son Noah uh, works for the Disney Corporation and um, uh, with their labor relations stuff and helps negotiate contracts and advises HR on what do you do when the people he oversees are naughty and, <laughs> and advise them, do we fire them or not, and that kind of thing. And he's just thriving. He's loving life. He's got a girlfriend, which you'll probably meet eventually. He looks very serious, very promising, where hopefully we love her. She's amazing. Uh, so he's flown the coop, lives, uh, lives in Anaheim, and his office literally is on the other side of Toontown. If you've ever been to Disneyland, it's pretty wild. Uh, my daughter, Lake, in there, she now lives in San Francisco, and uh, she just passed her fourth and final CPA test. So she's a CPA, which is very exciting. So we're grateful for that. And she also has a significant other who we're going to have an official meeting. I've met him, you know, very briefly. She, Saving the best for last. He hasn't met Lynn yet. That's, that's, the, that's the highest bar. So we'll see how that goes in just a couple of weeks. But they're both doing good. But this, this was not now. This was long ago. And I know what you're saying. Wow, Pete hasn't aged a bit. <laughs> and I, I hear that and I'm like, I know. It's amazing. I still look 29. I can't believe it. <laughs> if only. <laughs> Uh, I bring this up to you because uh, we had a ritual in our house. 
And the ritual was, um, both Lynn and I, when, uh, when we got married and we're talking about kids and what we wanted to do with our kids, we were both equally, equally committed to wanting to provide a, a, as much as we could possibly imagine a loving, supportive foundation for our kids. And we, all, we both brought our different motivations uh, into our family that we were creating. Um, but for me, I wanted to make sure, as a dad, which doesn't always happen uh, in our culture, I think it's more so now than it was when I was a kid and certainly when my dad was a kid, but I didn't want to miss a, I didn't want to miss a heartbeat of my kids' lives. Uh, from the moment uh, my son was born, he was born six weeks early and was in neonatal ICU, and you couldn't, it was hard to get me out of there. I was feeding him when he was 24 hours, or yeah, 24 hours old with a little teeny tiny bottle uh, because he didn't have the strength uh, to do it naturally with Len. And the nurses were, would make fun of me, oh, here's that dad again, you know, coming to, to feed his baby, and it was precious. Uh, because I knew this is, this is my son, and I get, I get to do this. And when my daughter was born, um, same thing. I mean, just every day I didn't want to miss a thing. And every stage, and what I tell young parents as much, and Lynn and I both, what we tell them as much as possible, which is very difficult when you're in the moment and very easy to say in retrospect, is to really savor every stage of it. Really milk it because every stage is different and unique and we tried to do that to the best of our ability and I'm so grateful that I did because what that provided I think for my kids was a very consistent growing relationship where they understood that they were deeply profoundly loved all the way through uh, and still to this day a love that's not based on transaction. We say that to our kids all the time. Anytime we say we're proud of you for this accomplishment or whatever, we always follow it up with, but we don't want you to think our love is contingent on your performance <laughs> because they're both performers. And we're like, we just want you to know no matter what, we love you, and that will never, ever, ever go away. Well, one of our rituals when they were little, which we did for years until they outgrew it, uh, was there would be a routine that sometime after dinner it would be time for their daily bathtub adventure and uh, for some of those years they'd be in playing together in the bathtub you know and somehow getting clean in the process and one of us would be in there to make sure that all happened and and then it would be jammy time and they'd get in their pajamas and uh, Lakin's in her pajamas there um, Noah's not yet and then it would be our bedtime routine, which would start with a story. And either Len or myself uh, would read the kids a story. Sometimes it would be just like this, where I'm reading them both the same book. Sometimes I would take one and Len would take the other. And they'd be on our laps and we would just kind of wind down together and read a story together to help slow them down for the night. And selfishly, we got a little extra cuddle time uh, with our kids, which was wonderful. And then that wasn't the, wasn't the end of it. Then they'd go, we'd tuck them into bed. And then and tucking into bed routine meant that we'd snuggle up with them for a little bit and even sing a lullaby or two. There were like two or three songs that were just part of the mix every, every night. And um, it was so routine for us that I went to a conference that took me away for a week and I recorded the songs uh, because I knew I knew that they would miss me. 
And I knew I was missing out. And so it's still there for their blackmail purposes <laughs> somewhere, uh, and they know where it is. I tell you all this just because the whole purpose of it was to let them know um, that they're loved in a very, very tend, um, touchy is not the right word, but uh, it is kind of tactile. That's the word I'm looking for, way, an expressed way. And I want you to imagine with me, this is just an uh, imagination experiment. I want you to imagine if Jesus had kids, which some scholars suggest, well, maybe he did have a family. We don't have history. I don't think that's true. I think we'd know that uh, in historical data if that happened. But some have wondered about what that would look like. And I think if Jesus was a daddy, and I think if he wanted to tell his kids about Abba, which means daddy, that was his favorite term for God. It doesn't mean it's the only term for God. He used other terms for God, but daddy was his favorite. And I think that phrase, daddy for God, was born out of his own experience. I think Jesus, at some point in his life, had a profound experience. And it may have been toward the end of his life, in the last few years. He grew up, grew up in the Jewish tradition as a poor carpenter. Maybe it was when he was like 30, when he uh, heard the summons from his distant cousin John the Baptist to, to come into the waters and do this. And maybe that was the moment where he had the profound experience. We don't know. We don't know anything about his life from the time of his childhood until he started his ministry. So who knows when this happened, but somewhere in there, he discovered God as daddy. And it completely changed his worldview and his life and it directed his ministry from that point forward. So imagine a daddy who really wanted to let his kids know about daddy. And I think what he'd be thinking as he was going through his routine is he'd be thinking to himself, this world can be harsh. And the dominant worldview that's been around kind of forever is that, you know, you better keep an eye over your shoulder because you don't know what's coming to get you. And you're probably not worth that much because you're told that from some people and from systems. So you have rulers around you that do not treat you humanely. And that carries with it a message more than taxation or slavery. It tells you you are less than. And you see people lord that over other people. And Jesus is looking at that, and he's also considering the other prevailing worldviews around them that theologically, when they start thinking about the biggest questions, that the prevailing theological storyline that is out there is that the gods themselves don't care about you. And while they put this creation together, they're not all that impressed with it. It's like Pete Shaw making communion stuff. It would not turn out well, so they're just okay with it. It's sort of a chessboard for them to do their God thing. And these little creatures called people don't really care about them either. They, they're noisy and they get in the way a lot. That's sort of the prevailing view that was in the air at the time of Jesus. And Jesus has experienced his daddy, God, Abba. He's like, I've got to correct this. I want my kids to know that they're loved not just by me, I want them to know they're loved by the one who gives us life and breath, who created everything. And I want them to know who this God is. And so I want you to imagine that we're in a bedtime story moment. And Jesus offers this poem. Because Genesis 1 is a poem. 
It's not a scientific textbook. It's not telling us the exact details of creation. Uh, this is the Jewish story of how they saw the world from their experience as the Jewish people. In a world full of theological perspectives, the Jewish people are saying, well, this is how we understand God. And it's quite different from the way other cultures thought about God. And frankly, for you and I here today in 2022, because we have so many messages coming at us that are bad news and make us think that things are terrible, and maybe we're terrible and you're terrible. But the Jewish vision of the very beginning and the one who is breathing life into everything is very good. So let's snuggle up with Jesus and let him tell us the story of how things began. First, this. God created the heavens and earth. All you see, all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. God spoke, light, and light appeared. God saw that light was good and separated light from darkness. Did you hear that, kids? God saw that light was good and separated light from dark. God named the light day, and he named the dark night. It was evening. It was morning. Day one. God spoke. Sky in the middle of the water. Separate water from water. And God made sky. He separated the water under sky from the water above sky. Talk to Lauren Hosmore about this if you really want to get nerdy about this particular verse. And there it was. He named sky the heavens. It was evening. It was morning. Day two. God spoke. Separate water beneath heaven. Gather into one place. Land appear. And there it was. God named the land earth. He named the pooled water ocean. God saw that it was good. Kids, did you hear that? God saw that it was good. God spoke. Earth, green up. Grow all varieties of seed-bearing plants, every sort of fruit-bearing tree. And there it was. Earth produced green seed-bearing plants, all varieties, and fruit-bearing trees of all sorts. God saw that it was good. Good job, kids. You're getting it. It was evening. It was morning. Day three. God spoke. Lights, come out. Shine in heaven's sky. Separate day from night. Mark seasons and days and years. Lights in heaven's sky to give light to earth. And there it was. God made two big lights, the larger to take charge of day, the smaller to be in charge of night. And he made the stars. God placed them in the heavenly sky to light up earth and oversee day and night to separate light and dark. God saw that it was, and it was evening. It was morning, day four. God spoke again. 
Swarm ocean with fish and all sea life. Birds fly through the sky over earth. God created the huge whales, all the swarm of life in the waters, and every kind and species of flying birds. God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Prosper, reproduce, fill ocean. Birds reproduce on earth. It was evening. It was morning. Day five. God was speaking a lot. And as God was speaking, things were getting created. And everything that God was creating was good. God spoke again. Earth, generate life. Every sort and kind, cattle and reptiles and wild animals, all kinds. Lynn Shaw someday is going to say, we don't need spiders, so don't do the spiders. <laughs> but do it anyway, because they're important. And there it was. Wild animals of every kind, cattle of all kinds, every sort of reptile and bug. God saw that it, including the spiders, was good. Because a daddy is going to talk about what mommy doesn't like on that, on that verse, right? <laughs> God saw that it was good. God spoke. Let us make human beings. Hmm, that's interesting. Let us make human beings. Hmm. God spoke. Let us make human beings in our image. Make them reflecting our nature so they can be responsible for the fish in the sea the birds in the air, the cattle, and yes, earth itself, so that they can be responsible for the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the cattle, and yes, earth itself, and every animal that moves on the face of the earth. God created human beings. He created them godlike. That's interesting. Reflecting God's nature. He created the male and female. That's really interesting. He hasn't said this about any other part of creation yet, this whole being godlike. He hasn't said that. I wonder if that means that the things that we're seeing in the story so far, kids, is somehow true of us too. That just as God spoke things into being and created things and started taking care of things, I wonder if that's what God means. What do you think, kids? God bless them, these human beings. Prosper, reproduce, fill earth, take charge, be responsible for fish in the sea and birds in the air for every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. Then God said, I've given you every sort of seed-bearing plant on earth and every kind of fruit-bearing tree, given them to you for food. To all animals and all birds, everything that moves and breathes, I give whatever grows out of the ground for food. And there it was. God looked over everything he made, and it was so good, so very good. And that was day six. And that's our bedtime story, kids. What do we hear from this bedtime story? I think it's interesting, and I'm hardly going to plumb the depths. And by the way, one thing that I was reminded of uh, in the conference was that there's robust discussion going on about biblical interpretation to this day, new ways of thinking that have yet to be enunciated, and that's how it should be.
we in the Baptist tradition, which is what we are, we actually, that's one of our pillars, is the freedom to think creatively and freely about the Bible and to talk about it and chew each other up. That was the rabbinical tradition that Jesus grew up in. Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think that means? You think that's what it means? Well, I think this is what it means. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, I can see that too. So I guess all these different ideas are available to us to think, and each one sort of sparks the other. In other words, what I'm telling you, there's not one right interpretation of this. To say there's one way of thinking about creation is ridiculous and goes against our own tradition, the way of the Jewish people, which we are a part of as Christian people, which means anti-Semitism should never be uttered on the part of any Christian anywhere, uh, helps us understand that the real tradition is one of dialogue and ongoing learning and respect and wonder, offering new ideas about things. And what do we see in this? We see that the first word of God is not the Bible that I was just reading, the first word of God is creation itself. God, creator, speaks. The word of God coming forth and what comes about but creation itself. Now, this is story. This is not quite myth. It's not quite the same. This is the Jewish story of how things came to be. Not to be taken literally, clearly, because of the prose that is being used for the genre. So we know that they're trying to express something bigger to help us see great things. And the first thing we see is God is speaking. God is involved in creation. The first example of God's presence with us is creation itself. The creation itself tells us much about God. It's a part of everything, and we're a part of it. So there's no separation between us and creation. We are a part of creation. And God is a part of creation, which means that God is a part of us in this strange stew that we have called life. And God pronounced it all good. We also realize just by seeing the obvious that this creative thing that God is doing seems to be part and parcel of who God is. It's almost like, and we know because the universe continues to expand at an accelerating rate, that whatever we call God, this creative spirit, whatever that might be, however we can understand that, can't not create. God can't be God without continuing to create. Does, do you catch, follow me there? And if we are created in the image of God, unique in this whole thing, with different capacity and responsibility than others, then that means we also have that capacity to create. And when we stop creating, we start dying. We know this is true on a cellular level, right? We know that when our bodies start to stop creating new cells, when different things start to affect us, the old saying goes, if you're not growing, you're dying. That's kind of true. Our own bodies are continually recreating. Your skin is not the skin you wore. Just, a, what is it, every seven days or something like that? Uh, I know my hair hasn't changed a bit over my many years, but yours has. <laughs> <laughs> our bodies are constantly recreating our earth is constantly reproducing it's part of it to create is to be godlike and what do we see when god is doing god's creative work speaking everything into being he's saying this is a good thing he's generous with it he didn't give us mars to live on although mars in all of its glory no no offense mars <laughs> but good grief what a planet to behold. 
How rich, how generous is the capacity for this place we call home? God created it with great generosity of God's self to make this and called it all good. Which means, and it's even in there, in the story, from the very first story of the Jewish tradition, says, we who are created in this very good, loving, generative God, we also have responsibility to cultivate and to foster and to make sure that it's all healthy and balanced and we don't destroy it because it's precious. And a lot of people and lives are counting on us. Animals are counting on us to make sure we get it right. So be responsible, you co-creators. You can do this. You've been gifted to it. God self said, you're good. You're even very good. And you're like me. So you can do it too. The daddy is saying to his children as he's tucking them into bed, you were made for this. You were made for this. And I love you. I think you're wonderful. What can you do with who you are? How can you bring your creativity to bear on the rest of creation as part of creation? Because this is your joy to do. You can see Abba, Daddy, every step of creation. Can't you just see if we can put a human face on it? Can't you just see the smile at every step? Wow, oceans. Good work, man. That is, that is something to be, mountains, wow, those are extraordinary. An apple tree, well, we'll save that for chapter three, but anyway, it's a really cool, <laughs> really cool fruit. All these things, can you imagine the joy that shows up, if you can just imagine it, the joy that shows up on the Creator's face at every spoken word come into being, and people, and the capacity for people to then articulate in ways and express things and grow together and take it to a whole different level, really not capped at all in our capacity for development. Extraordinary. Well, Jesus understood this call. Again, I think he was captivated by this idea of God as loving daddy, calling us into what we were made to be. Too often in the last oh, just 1,800 years or so, uh, the focus has been on the original sin story when really all along the very beginning story is original blessing. It is an originally good, blessed story. That is our foundation. That is our foundation. And Jesus knew it. And so as he went into the world, being his co-creator self made in the image of God and fully believing it, and choosing to lean into it as much as possible, making all of himself available to as much of God as possible. He found that sometimes when he would go and do these wonderful things of creating, he found sometimes it was effortless. That all he had to do was just be and be himself and think for himself and speak it out there in God-like ways, loving ways that God would be. He's emulating God who is good and loving and generous. And so when he was good and loving and generous to other people, what a joy it brought, not to just himself, but to other people. So he saw people come to life who thought life was done. He saw people come into grace and redemption. Their lives were changed because they really believed what Jesus saw and what he was saying, and their life was radically different. They were saved, which means they were healed from the curse of the bad story that always prevails in competition with the very good story of Genesis 1. The good news of God 
prevailed again and again with Jesus. And so many times, I think for Jesus, it was just joy, effortless, and so rewarding. And yet, we also knew that there were times when Jesus knew that it was going to be different. That there were some times where Jesus knew that for him to bring into being some new ways of thinking, it was going to be anything but easy. Because there were people who were protecting that old story, who wanted to keep perpetuating the story of darkness, of pain and suffering, telling us that we're bad because it worked for them. When you are in a power system and a power structure, such stories are wonderful tools of manipulation. Because if you're at the top of the food chain, which means that you've been blessed by God more than any others, you now have power over those who are not as good or like you. Be it in the Roman Empire that Jesus fought against or the Jewish hierarchy which Jesus spoke against, they both knew that if Jesus' message, which was the original Jewish message, if it really took hold, it would upend everything and people would start seeing each other as equals, beautiful, not to be demeaned, not to be used, enslaved, all these things. It would change everything if the good news really got out. And there were people who absolutely recognized that, people in power who did not want that to happen. That happened in Jesus' day. It happened before Jesus' day. It's happened every day since Jesus, right up to now. And yet here we are with the good news story, co-creators with God, recognizing that sometimes it is a wonderful, joyful, effortless experience to just be who God wants us to be and see beautiful, creative things happen. And sometimes it's like this. Jesus wanted his disciples, his followers, to forever remember this. Broken bread, representing what was going to happen to him that he knew was going to happen to him, which had happened to him in different ways before as he received the scorn of those who were in power and knew it was going to come in a very powerful way very, very soon. That this brokenness was going to represent the brokenness of his own body because he felt called to create all the way to the end and felt called to live in the good news of God all the way to the end, which means that when he got beaten up, he did not fight back because he recognized that was incongruent with the God of love. He chose rather to be silent, to let the world see what that other story can do to somebody even like him so that we would look at it, reflect, and say to ourselves, we're capable of that. Do we want to be that? And those Jesus followers who have gone on forever, up until now, were still weighing that option, still wondering, but this is the way the world works, the bad news story, while Jesus is constantly saying, no, our origin story is very good. Which one are you going to follow? Which one are you going to actually live by? Sometimes to say that good news out loud is going to come at a cost, and it's going to be painful. It's not the end of the story when you die. We don't do it to die, but sometimes suffering is a part of being the agency of God in the world. 
that's pushing back against a very bad story. It's going to cost your body. It might even shed your own blood. Not shedding other people's blood. Sometimes it really does come with a price because it's hard to change. It's hard to get the new story in. This is part of what this whole thing represents. And it's there for us. I think Jesus, as he's telling his kids the the good news story, knowing that they are fully aware of the bad news story and they're going to be hearing the bad news story more than they ever want to, I think Jesus might include with this uh, little ending. Let's see if this is going to work. Go to the next slide, Trudy. Maybe he would say this, you know, God made it all and then said, now you do this too. So we make our little worlds where we can. God filled the world with grace and said, now you do this too. So we add our little portions of love and mercy where we can. God emptied God's self in love and said, now you do this too. So we pour out as much love as we dare for our neighbors as ourselves. The next slide continues. God said, I created you in my image. Make sure everything you do looks like me. Oh, I like how they phrase this. God said, I created you in my image. Make sure everything you do looks like me. And so we give generously of ourselves, not only because of the world's needs, but because we're called to be generous, to be grateful, to be in the image of God. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite you forward, and this will be chaos for a moment or two, and that's fine. Uh, Beautiful things were created out of chaos, after all, in Genesis 1. And so we're going to experience this together. And part of this communion for you to take the bread and the cup is to decide, are you going to be a part of this good news story? And all of its joy and effortlessness and reward, but also following Jesus, even when it's tough even though it requires much of us because the good news story is that important to get out to a world that's convinced it doesn't even exist. Let's pray together. Oh, God, what a gift. What a gift to be tucked in by such a story, to to go to bed hearing about the goodness of God, the love of God, for everyone and everything, to know we're a part of it, and yet endowed with something so incredibly powerful and special and life-giving, we get to be a part of this thing, to really reflect you in powerful, profound ways as those who've been created, who've been given life and breath by you and And also then, by extension, to to continue that wonderful work, to allow you to work through us. May we, even if just for a moment, may we right now re-up our commitment to believing this good news, this good news story, this original blessing story, and realize that is our foundation, and that is our real source of life forevermore. 
And as we take the bread and cup, may we celebrate and be grateful for all the times that we got to be a part of the co-creation experience and knew it, and it was awesome. And so we're thankful for that. But may we also be sober and somber and recognize as we take this bread and cup that we know that it will and it has sometimes required pain and suffering for a very good end. May we have the courage to keep living into the way of God, the way of love, that the world might know more of God and love. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.